We're going to jump right into the scriptures and then start a new series together. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 uh, into chapter 4. And we're going to be reading this moment in Jesus' life, his baptism, and then as he moves into the desert uh, for 40 days. And so let's read together. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. This will kick us off. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you not come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descend like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels according to you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Let's pray for a moment. God, we pause right now because we so long to hear from you. We so long for your words and your words to intersect with our hearts and lives. And we say welcome to the work of your spirit as we allow these words to captivate our hearts. Um, May they be beyond even what I say for what we truly need to hear today, God. In Christ's name, amen. Um, hey, I don't know if some of you are watching some of the, the Marvel series or Marvel Universe these days in the comic books, but there's this one series called Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And uh, it's an interesting one, and, and they've done six or seven se- uh, seasons uh, on Disney right now. And this last season, in the final kind of season of this show, there's 12 episodes that are filled with time travel and cosmic interruptions and skin-of-your-teeth rescues and pivoting to the last second trying to fulfill this plan and you just wonder how did all this come together and on this third episode or this 13th episode that ends the whole series it's fascinating because they just show how everything works now these agents are ones that obviously in kind of like comic worlds try and protect the world from threats and things along those lines and so as this kind of big moment comes to play in this last episode it shows how all this was put together why they went here, why they went there, why they cut through a timeline, why they jumped into that year or that year, and what was happening behind the scenes, and how right from the beginning there was a plan all along to win the day, 
to rescue the planet. In a month from now, we're going to be celebrating Good Friday. And it's a moment in uh, history, especially as Christ followers, we celebrate because we know what God accomplished through Jesus Christ to rescue humanity by going to a cross. Early on in the life of Jesus, there's hints that Jesus knows he's heading for a cross. It's always been part of the plan. It's always been part of the purpose. And we see early in his life and ministry hints towards this. In this series that we want to jump into today for the next four weeks as we lead up to Easter weekend, we want to immerse ourselves in some of these stories, some of these moments that help us discover the plan unfolding and how right from the beginning we get to see where this was headed. But it also helps us see, and this is what I'm so excited about, it also helps us understand the way of life that the cross and the hints towards the cross reflect. So we just read Matthew chapter 3 and 4, this moment that really launches Jesus into ministry, into uh, something, his, into his purpose. And we read about his baptism and his testing or temptations in the desert. Something Jesus receives, or maybe more something that's affirmed in Christ in his baptism, are two things that we've talked about before, but are highlighted here, his identity and his purpose. You heard it, right? That his, his identity as God's son is affirmed. This is my son in whom, I'm, in whom I love. You hear God's voice over Jesus. And you also get this sense of the purpose that's taking shape because Jesus goes from this private life, unknown by most people, and after baptism in the desert, he's launched into something much more public, into his ministry and mission and calling of disciples and teaching and healings and all these things. Something amazing that takes place in this baptism that is so significant for you and me is noticing that his steps of baptism are steps down into the waters. You might think, well, that's what baptism is, just going in the water and coming out. But this is the New Testament images of death and burial and resurrection. It's the early hints of what Jesus will end up doing on Easter weekend as he steps, as he dies and goes into a grave and then eventually rises from the dead. But the first steps of baptism are Christ's path downwards. It's the death. It's the burial. It's, it's surrender. It's, it's a posture of humility. And you might say, well, but Dave, isn't, isn't Jesus God? Isn't he divine? Isn't he all-powerful? Yes. And yet, one of the hymns that the early church sang over and over again that Paul records when he writes to this Philippian church, chapter 2, he says, you know, Jesus, though he was equal with God, he didn't just grasp to that, but he took on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, death on a cross, when, when Jesus tells John in that baptism moment, when John says, I, I, can't, I can't baptize you, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This moment is to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, what I'm doing here right now is to fulfill God's plan, is to fulfill God's purpose. Not only the trajectory of it, but the how of it. And baptism is that first step towards the cross because it's a downward step towards death. It's fascinating here because the spirit of God that descends on Jesus at baptism 
also leads Jesus into 40 days of fasting in the desert to be tempted by the Satan. As Jesus heads into the desert, it is a time of testing. The word tempted or testing there can both fit the original Greek word. And and we get hints of of what happened in Israel's life, which we kind of looked at last month, right? Their journey in the wilderness was a testing of the Lord to forge their identity in who God called them to be. And here Jesus is restarting Israel's story, restarting Israel's journey. But where Israel failed, Jesus wins. Sorry, that was a spoiler alert. But here in the desert, Jesus uh, is marked. He's marked in his identity and in his purpose. Because in the desert, what takes place in baptism is revealed and is forged in greater strength as he walks through these testing moments. But something else is taking place in these two back-to-back moments of baptism and the wilderness is that Jesus is showing to us the alternate life of God's kingdom. I don't mean an alternate reality. I mean literally that there's a contrast between the way Jesus calls us to live and the way the world calls us to live. In the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. It's that Jesus in this moment doesn't just show us how to win because often we get brought to this this part of scripture to say, look how Jesus overcame temptation or testing. Jesus doesn't just show us how to win even though that's there, but how to win differently than the world wins. So he shows us how to live differently than the world lives. And that's, that's the picture that the cross gives us. Yes, the cross is a moment in history. Yes, Jesus accomplishes something significant and great, climactic at the cross. But it also shows us how to live. And over the next few weeks, what I hope that we get from these moments in the gospel accounts leading us up to Easter is a cross-shaped Life. That's what we're after. We're not just trying to win. We're trying to win the way Jesus wins. We're not just trying to live. We're trying to live the way Jesus lives. And when I say try, I don't mean just by all our effort, but the invitation, the vision that God leads us towards, what he's truly calling us to and empowers us for. Now, in, in the version we read here about this desert account, we read the word, the, the devil came. And, and later on, it, uh, Jesus refers to him as Satan. And that's actually the word in the Greek. It's the word, actually, the Satan. It's more like a title of this creature that's in the desert. We're not specifically told it's the devil, And we can allude to that, but what we do know is that this creature, in fact, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project likes to call it an it and not a the because he doesn't want to give the dignity of, 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 you know, calling this a person in a sense. And it's a sense that this figure represents evil or the evil one. But the Satan is actually a title. It means adversary. One who is adverse to us or comes against us. And really that's how the way of evil or the evil one works. That's why Jesus invites us to pray that we would be delivered from the evil one in the Lord's prayer. The way evil works, it's more deceptive and more mysterious and sometimes more camouflaged than we even realize. Because evil and the evil one works through our human selfishness and through our human sin to sabotage what God wants to do in our lives and to sabotage the kind of life he calls us to. 
This Satan, this, this personified presence of evil tests Jesus. And how does he test? Through questions. Through questions. And we know exactly what that means. We might be thinking something or having kind of a, a desire for something about our life. And then we're talking to someone and someone asks us a question and we're like, why did you ask me that question? Now you've made me doubt what I was thinking of doing. Or you present a plan to someone or a good friend and you're like, this is what I want to do. And then they ask you a question and it kind of makes you second guess what you were going to do in the first place. And this is what happens in the desert. Jesus is presented with these questions. And what's the target of the questions? His identity and his purpose. Notice that the Satan asks him two times out of the three questions. If you are the son of God. Now, Jesus was just affirmed in, the, in, in his baptism. Heavens open up God's voice. This is my son. And yet, in the desert, he's questioned if you are the son of God. And at least the first test. The first test is about hunger. God's real son can't be hungry and tired like you and me. And that's where the Satan gets at. Any son of God would have anything he needed at his disposal when he wants it, how he wants it, whenever he wants it. In other words, the Satan is trying to say there's no struggle for God's son. God's son would instantly be able to just figure this out and make it happen. So get some bread. Yeah, there's stones and other stuff around you. You got power. Turn that stuff into food. That's what you need. Do it. And it's right in this moment that Jesus is tested in his trusting of his heavenly father, of his father in the middle of this, these struggling circumstances, in the middle of what he's walking through. And Jesus responds. He says, hey, listen, man does not live on bread alone. This is another picture, another glimpse back into Israel's life in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He's not saying that bread is not good. Bread is great. Bread is important. Food is awesome. Eat lunch today. I hope you had breakfast. All that stuff is really, really important. We all need to eat. But what Jesus is saying is life is more than just food. Your life, your purpose, your meaning, your greater purpose is more than just what you put in your stomach. Israel learned this in the wilderness. They were so worried about the bread they were going to have and, and, and water and all these things which God was providing. And God says to them in Deuteronomy 8, hey, hey, guys, I'm feeding you. But listen, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that God speaks. In other words, on the purpose that God wants to speak into your life. Yes, it's found in the scriptures, but it's not just each Bible passage. It's literally God's word of life for you as invitation. God's intention for Israel was more than survival. God's intention for us is more than survival. So here's my question for you today. What are you hungry for? What am I hungry for? Are you just interested in survival? then go and have cornflakes and toast. That is awesome. You do. You, we need that to live. We need that to survive. But here's the question. Are you and I longing for God's word to bring purpose into our life? 
See, when Paul says later to the Colossian church, the message of Christ must dwell in you richly, he's talking about the call and the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom and the invitation to follow Jesus because this feeds us beyond the cornflakes we ate this morning and beyond the sandwich you're going to have at lunch and beyond the snacks you're going to have throughout the day. Feeds us beyond all that. The first test is, what are you hungry for? And what's going to feed that hunger for a greater purpose, not just survival? The second test is, hey, let's prove God. Let's prove God. The second test is prove to yourself and to the world that God has your back. As if we got to somehow show the world that God, God exists. Like if we're God, God's defender. And so the Satan, it's like he takes Jesus into a vision and puts him on this high place and says, hey, if you're God's beloved son... If God loves you so much, if you're so sure of your purpose, Jesus, if you're so sure of your identity, if you're so sure that God has your back, hey, jump. Jump and see what happens. Let's see if your father really loves you. Now, you might say, well, that's, that doesn't sound that bad. Like, why not show that God really loves me? It's funny. Some preachers can talk like this, and I'm not going to name them, but we can sometimes hear a preacher's voice say this. If you're really God's child, what are you afraid of? Come on. Or if you're really God's son or daughter, hold this snake and you'll see that the venom will not kill you. Show the world how powerful you are or God is in you. Or some go even further. Say, you've heard this. Hey, if you're God's kids, you should be healthy every day. You should be wealthy your whole life. Your bank account should be stocked. You should be driving a luxurious car. You are a child of the king. So therefore, man, there is nothing you should not have at your disposal. And we see this all over the internet, even more these days because of social media. Someone shares a story, hashtag conquered. Someone shares another story, hashtag covered by the blood, nothing touches me, or hashtag healed, hashtag blessed. That's a real popular one. Man, look at these awesome $400 shoes I bought, hashtag blessed. Man, look at how God has provided this beautiful $150,000 car, hashtag blessed. There's nothing wrong with my life. It's amazing. God loves me. It's interesting how Satan used that similar test to Jesus. There was a song a couple of years ago that came out. It was a worship song. It was actually called Healer. It's a beautiful song. But later on, after it got really popular, and people went back to the story, the testimony that the author of the song started to share about how he was sick and he was almost going to die and God healed him and he writes these words and they found out that the person faked his sickness that the person just made up the story to get the song that he wrote out. What was tragic is that the words of the song weren't really wrong. The words alluded to the Lord as healer. That's one of God's names in the Hebrew scriptures. The the lyrics weren't wrong. And if you think about the story here in the desert, Satan's quoting Psalm 91 back to Jesus. Satan's words are not wrong. But the motive was, and the posture was, and the end game was. So the question in this test is, what are you trying to prove? 
Are you, are you trying to prove to others that God exists? That God loves you? And what methods will you use to get there? And here's the question I, I struggle with as I'm thinking about this text is, do I trust God beyond my circumstances? Can I trust him even when I don't get what I want? Is, does God still love me even if I drive a 12-year-old car? Is God okay if I make less than six figures? Or for some, less than seven figures, whatever? Is, does God still love me if, I sh- if, if some of my clothes come from Value Village or Walmart? Is that okay? Or do I only prove to the world when I get everything I want to show that God is my loving father? And imagine I did that with my kids. Imagine I just gave them everything they wanted because once in a while they'll say, hey, if you're really my dad, you would buy me this car. Or somebody will look at uh, one of my kids and say, hey, if your dad really loved you, he would have saved you from that mistake. If your dad really loved you, he'd work everything out for the life that you envision. He would have gotten you that thing you wanted and he would have gotten you to that place you desired and he would have given you all the clothes you wanted. If he was really your dad, if he really loved you, show us who your dad is by the stuff you have and the circumstances of your life. See, there's no doubt in my mind God is for you and God is with you and God is for us and with us and his love for us is our ultimate good. It's our ultimate good. But it's not like slick marketing. It's not, it, it's, God doesn't promise us tricks and toys and treats. He doesn't have to show the world who he is by a perfectly curated, luxurious life. And Jesus is tested. Will he prove God to the world this way? Or will he trust another way? Here's test number three. And it's, it's a test that's like a shortcut. Jesus has offered all the kingdoms and the splendor he can see. Again, it's like the Satan brings him to this, like give, puts him in this vision, you know, and sees the kingdoms of the world and all the splendor and goodness of the world. Now, the Satan skips the, the, the God's son pitch. He doesn't even mention if you are God's son. It's just kind of inherited now. And he just goes right for the jugular with the biggest temptation. And Satan offers him power and prestige and pleasure and position. He says, I'll give you all this. I'll give it all to you. All all the kingdoms you see, all the luxury you see in this world, I'll give it all to you if you just bow down to me. If you just bow down to me. He was saying, take a shortcut, Jesus. You're going to be king one day, but don't go the hard route. Just take it now. See, as God's son, Jesus will rise from the dead. Jesus will ascend to God's right hand. Jesus will be enthroned as Lord of the universe. He is already prophesied that he will be counselor and prince of peace and almighty God and everlasting father. But his path to that enthronement is the cross. Not consumerism, is the cross. Not all the kingdoms of the world. And here's the big difference. The path to Christ's exaltation is a cross. Not the coercive ways of the world. Not the just capitalistic ways of the world. And I'm not just talking about the capitalistic system. You can debate economies later. And not just consumer, not about consumerism. The path to his exaltation, to his enthronement, will be the way of the cross. But here's the test. Skip it. 
Skip the cross. Skip this path. Skip the suffering. Skip the human trials. That's the temptation that's so relevant for you and me in our modern world. Skip. Take a shortcut. Don't go the hard way. Take the power and position now. Become king right now. And you can use any power and any principality at your disposal, Jesus. I will give it to you. That's what Satan says. And that's what he often tells us. Hey, you can get to this end of the road, maybe by this route, and it's going to be easier. I'll give you everything right now. But Jesus is inviting us and show us, showing us a different way. Here's what it makes me think about. When you and I aim to win through the ways of the world, we've already lost. We've already lost. When the church is tempted to win at its mission and at its purpose and at its trajectory through the ways of the world, we've already lost. If we want to gain uh, influence through power and prestige, if we want to just sit at the table of kings and politicians and uh, economists and financial backers as the way to achieve God's mission, if we want to win that way, we've already lost. I'm not saying that God doesn't use relationships or finances or these things uh, for, for his will. It's totally possible. And God has blessed some of us in in wonderful ways and we've had wonderful opportunities. But when we try and win through those ways, we've already lost. See, God's root was a cross. God's root was a cross. It was a paradox. It was an upside down crown. Jesus' crown was upside down. It was counter-cultural. It was counter-intuitive. It was a paradox. God's root to his enthronement was a cross. And I love Jesus' final response. Well, I, it's not that I just love it. It's just, it's there. Some of us might be confronted with it, but here's what Jesus says. He just says, get lost, Satan. Get away from me, Satan. Jesus is saying to Satan, I will not allow you to rob me of my identity and my purpose. I'm not going to allow you to rob me of my identity or detour me from from my purpose that I've received from my father. I'm his son and I'm called to this purpose and this is the path that will take me there and I will not let you rob me from it so leave, get lost. And you will notice that in that moment, Jesus wins because even though evil and Satan will try and come against God's will throughout the gospel stories, even at the cross, it's always with his head down because he is already lost in this moment. Jesus says, I'm not going to let you rob me of this. No matter how good the bread tastes, even if you put Nutella on it, no matter how good it tastes, no matter how quickly I get people to trust, I can get people to trust God through tricks and treats and treasures and all these things, no matter how much earthly power or position you promise me, this is not the way. Satan, get lost. There's another way, and I'm walking that way. Right from his baptism, right from this moment in the desert, Jesus steps down the temptation is maybe i'll win this way jesus no i'm stepping down this way because jesus knows the end of the story and jesus knows how to get to the end of the story 
And we don't get to the resurrection and the enthronement any other way. It comes through this first step in this direction, which is a downward step of the cross. And his journey and his destination, how he gets there and where he gets to, are both intertwined together. The means, you can't just say the means justify the end. No, the end dictates the means. Because how Jesus wins is different. And we see it in how he lives his life. And so over the next few weeks, as we look at these moments in the life of Jesus and in the Gospels and some of his followers, as we head towards Easter Sunday, our, heart, our goal is that we would be influenced by a cross-shaped life. That although there's temptations and testings of our identity and purpose to walk the way of the cross, which will be different, which will feel different than the ways of the world, which will be countercultural, which will be a contrast. But see, Jesus doesn't call us to win the way the world wins, but to live differently. And we, need, we must trust that path and that route because that's the route to God's desired future for you and me. That's so important for us. See, you and I, we're all tempted to win in the world's way. We're all tempted to take those routes politically, militaristically, economically, intellectually. It's been so sad recently, even in the Christian circles, there's been huge leadership failures among very popular Christian leaders. And I don't want to name them or, or judge them or condemn them, but we have, we've noticed how easy it is as you get a glimpse of power, you get a glimpse of position, you get a glimpse of platform, and all of a sudden you think you need to use this route to get to God's desire. And that's just a crashing failure. We will never accomplish God's ways through the world's ways. And I hope we can explore that. But recognize today the first step is a downward step. And baptism shows us that. For those of you who have been baptized, reflect on your baptism, on your step into the water. And for those of you who want to follow Christ or have been following Christ but haven't made this step, that is such an important step to identify with who Jesus is, what he's calling you to, what it means to be his follower, to enter baptismal waters, to say, I am following you, Jesus. I'm walking your way. I'm trusting your lordship. And I'm going to take this downward step into the waters to follow your path of death, burial, and resurrection. In the next few moments, we're going to take communion, and I'm going to invite us towards that. And I'm going to invite you right now, as our team comes and leads us in a time of worship, to reflect on what we're talking about today. To truly come to the feet of Christ and worship him. To let the Holy Spirit examine your heart right now, my heart, as we worship in these next few moments and come to the bread and wine together after that. So let's do that. I'm going to turn it over to our team as um, we participate in these next few moments of worship together. Oh God, we, in this moment, as we've broken bread and poured wine and we are immersing ourselves in the story of Jesus, in the story of the cross. And God, while we are so grateful, so thankful for the triumph of the cross, the victory of the cross, 
the accomplishment of the cross. Oh God, we're also reminded of the way of the cross. The stepping down. Oh God, and even now, Lord, remind us, help us recognize the ways the world tests us and tempts us to walk in, a, in its way instead of the way of your kingdom. In its path instead of the path of the cross. In its direction instead of the direction of Christ. Oh God, help us recognize this. Give us the discernment, Lord. As we are baptized into Christ and baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection, may that also give us the wisdom and discernment and the eyes to see where the world calls us in contrast to where you call us. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we or the ways that your church has tried to win using the ways of the world. And we admit that we've, we've already lost if we go that route. And so even if it's harder, even if it's longer, even if it takes more time, even if it means a humbler path, a more subversive path, oh God, a suffering path, we want to walk your way and trust your victory and your path. In your name we pray, God. Amen.